Anybody ever heard um, somebody having a case of sour grapes? That's not when we let the communion juice sit too long. That's not what we're talking about. It's when somebody sees something or knows somebody or something that they really want, but they can't have it, so then they say something bad about it to kind of make them feel better about not having it, to make it sound like they didn't want it anyway. So, so like for me, somebody walks up with a donut, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go get me a donut. And I go in the back, and there's no donuts. So I say, I probably had drugs in it or something anyway. <laughs> it's hard to make a donut bad, right? I mean, so, you know, it's had to be drugs. That'd be something really bad. Um, yeah. I remember back, way back, and I won't go way back, when we were with New Covenant Church, there came a period where we were losing people at New Covenant. At a time when we were, had been growing, people started leaving, and they started going to this crummy church called Daniel's Bible Church. This was back in the late 90s. Some of you jokers were probably there at that time. Um, but I was mad at Daniel's Bible Church because all our people was going there. And so I had to figure out something bad about Daniel's Bible Church. Well, I heard from somebody who had went there that they had just voted to spend a bunch of money to pave a parking lot. And that, I'm like, well, who, what kind of church cares about people paves a parking lot? That's all I had. <laughs> but of sour grapes. Something good that I wanted but didn't really want. So I'm sure nobody has ever experienced that with an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, right? Like, they're the greatest thing in the world since sliced bread and then you break up and everything's wrong with them. They pick their nose funny or something like that. I didn't really want to be with him because, I mean, he picks his nose, you know, right? Sour grapes. Sour grapes. Today, we're going to see how there's a few people in our narrative today who are seeing the miracles that Jesus is performing, and they got a bad case of sour grapes. And you probably know these folks. We've seen them a few times before. But they kind of set the stage for us to see how we should respond to what Jesus is doing, to who Jesus is. And we're coming to the last two of the miracles listed in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. We've we've been through, this is our third set of miracles, and this is the last two of the third set that we're going to look at today here at the end of Matthew uh, chapter 9. And then next week we'll finish chapter 9 with a a narrative of Jesus. So um, we're going to see... Some people rejoice, some people share, and some people just have a bad case of sour grapes in our passage today. So if you would please stand as we read Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 through 34. And I want you to, like you're already rehearsing what I'm going to say, right? This is the Word of God and we stand out of reverence because of the Word of God and the God of the Word. And yes, that's true. And I would ask you, who would it take to get your full attention speaking this morning? Who would you want to be up here speaking that you'd be going, I want to hear what they have to say? 
me? Well, thank you. A, a, a government official, a movie star, a sports star. And this is so much, so much, so much greater and better than that. This is the very word of God that we're going to read together. That's why we stand. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes, open our hearts, open our lives to receive Jesus this morning. That we would see Him clearly, that we would know Him, that we would love Him, that we would treasure Him, and that we would be more like Him as a result of our time together. Thank you for your Spirit who is our teacher, our instructor, our counselor. We pray for His power to be evident in each and every individual life here and in our corporate life today. Help us, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So at the risk of beating a dead horse, I want to remind you, we're exploring a rash of miracles that Matthew tells us about that Jesus is doing in Matthew chapters 8 and 9. Now remember, we had come out of the Sermon on the Mount. Let me back up. So Jesus had went into the wilderness to be tempted. He came out... Uh, He was baptized, went into the wilderness to be tempted, he came back out, and he started his ministry. And the first thing that Matthew really shows us, after you get out of Matthew 4 where he says he's doing some miracles, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lays out the full vision of what this kingdom of the heavens is all about. And it's really inside out and upside down to what these Jewish religious people were expecting and what they would think the kingdom of God was all about. So he lays out the vision for it. And then after chapter 7, we've got chapters 8 and 9 where Matthew is telling us plainly that Jesus is doing these works to show that He is the Messiah, that He is the one that the Sermon on the Mount was preparing the way for, that He is the one that the Old Testament prophesied about, that He is indeed, by the miracles that He's performing, showing that He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Deliverer. He is the King of Israel, and He is the King of the world. There are many, many Old Testament passages that tell what the Messiah would do and what He would be like. And we've looked at a few of those over the past few weeks in conjunction with the miracles that we've looked at. Now I want to read one more of those Messianic prophecies today which really helps set the tone for what we'll see as we move through our account today in Matthew. The passage I want to read is Isaiah 35. It's verses 1 through 7. And this is a Messianic prophecy talking about what the kingdom of God will look like when it's ushered in here on earth. It says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. 
It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Let me just say this, what we were singing about, right? And all will see how great is our God. That's what Matthew, uh, that's what Isaiah is prophesying here. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Why? Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. So Isaiah foretells of a time when the kingdom of God will be set up on the earth and the whole earth will be healed. Nature will be healed. Fields, flowers, deserts will be healed. And he also says in this, the eyes of the blind will open. The ears of the deaf will hear. The tongue of the mute will shout for joy when the Messiah sets up the kingdom of God on earth. Now, in the passage that we read, Matthew, what did we see? We saw the eyes of the blind open. We saw a mute man be able to speak. He may have been deaf as well. We'll get into that in a minute. So what Isaiah was prophesying about, Jesus is giving a preview of here as he walks the earth in a physical body. And we've already seen sneak previews of these types of things in Jesus' miracles over the past several weeks. But today we're focusing on the eyes of the blind being opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man leaping like a deer, and the mute shouting for joy. Today we're going to see at least two of those things. Today we see the curtain pulled back to show these things as well. And oh, how the world should have rejoiced at the arrival and announcement of this king and his kingdom. But not everybody's happy. Verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David! Now, as we normally do and should do, let's pay attention to the opening of the verse. And as Jesus passed on from there... Well, where was Jesus passing on from? What did we talk about last week? He's leaving a home, the home of a guy named Jairus, Jairus, whose daughter had died. And he showed up at his house, sent the mourners away, put his hand on the little girl, and he said, get up. And she came back to life. So he's leaving there. He's passing on from there. He's leaving a home where he just raised a girl from the dead. And before he had gotten to the home, he had healed a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years prior. She snuck up behind him and touched his tassels, remember? So two major miracles had just occurred, and he's passing on from there. So you know there had to have been some chatter going on about all that had just happened, just even if it was just those two miracles. And when we meet these two blind men in our passage, they must have heard what had happened. And they started putting pieces together. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on in their minds, but they must have done some reasoning. So this guy, this Jesus, 
We've heard that he's healed lepers. We've heard that he's healed paralytics. He's touched people with fever. He's calmed storms. He's cast out demons. He's raised the dead for crying out loud. This is him. This is the Messiah. And if we know our Old Testament well, these blind men must have been saying, the Messiah can open the eyes of the blind. Well, let's do some simple math. One plus one equals two. We're blind. He's the Messiah. Hmm. I wonder, I wonder, what if? If the Messiah can heal the blind, I'm blind. The Messiah can heal the blind, we're blind. You think maybe we should try to get his attention? Yeah, let's do that. Because it'd be great to be able to see. Don't you think? Yeah, that'd be great, man. It'd be great to be able to see. We don't know if they became blind or if they were born blind. We don't know. Either way, they can't see. So they are crying aloud as they're following behind them. And that, that means exactly what it says. They're making some racket. They're not going, um, Jesus, Jesus, um, um, who? Hey, over here. They are crying aloud. Have mercy on us! Son of David, us over here. Have have mercy on us. Now the phrase that they're using, have mercy on us, son of David, has a couple of different importances in it, which point to them knowing and acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. First, they approach Him asking Him to have what on them? Mercy. Mercy means you don't get what you deserve. Okay, justice, mercy, grace. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. And grace is when you get what you don't deserve. It's a good way to remember that. So you're guilty, but you get let off. That's mercy. You're guilty, and they reward you for it. That's grace. Okay, justice is you're guilty, and you go to jail or whatever. So they're asking for mercy. Now think about that for a second. In asking for mercy, they're asking Jesus to help them. They're asking Jesus, who would be in a position of of a higher place, of a greater place, to look down on them in their lower place and help them where they are. They believe that He can bless them. They believe that He can let them out of this sentence of blindness. So they're asking for mercy. They're putting him in a, in a place above themselves. But why do they see him in this place? You can tell why because of what they call him. They call him Son of David. Have mercy on us, Son of David. Now what's that mean? What's the significance there? If you remember way back, and it's been a while, we saw in Matthew's genealogy that Jesus was shown to come from the line of two men specifically, Abraham and David. This established Jesus as being descended from Abraham, who's the father of the faithful and the father of the Jewish people. And God had made an eternal covenant with Abraham to bless him for the purpose of blessing the whole earth. And Jesus is shown as being descended from David, who God also made a covenant with, saying that someone from David's line will perpetually sit on the throne of God's kingdom and God's people. So the Jewish people would refer to the Messiah, the coming one, as the son of David. 
because He was going to come and reestablish that throne. The people of God would be a sovereign nation again and it would be a son of David. Someone from the line of David who would set up that, who would set up that kingdom and that throne and that Messiah would be a descendant, a son of David. So they referred to Him as the son of David, which is exactly what these blind men are calling Jesus. By calling Him the son of David, they are calling Him the Messiah. When a lot of people aren't. So this is big. It's a messianic confession. These two men are calling Jesus the Messiah and they're asking Him to reach down from His place of power and authority and heal their blindness because they know that the Messiah can do that. And they know it. So they ask Him to. Actually, they yell and beg Him to. So how does Jesus react? Well, actually, He doesn't address them. Look at the next verse. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Now you see that? Now this one woman sneaks up behind him and touches his tassel. And he stops for her. These guys are yelling, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy, have mercy, Son of David, Son of David. And Jesus just keeps on walking and goes into the house. Messiah! Blind! Need help! Please heal us! Hey, hey! And he just goes in the house. What do you think they're doing? Where'd he go? Well, they can't see him. I'm not trying to be funny. People are probably like, shut up, man. He's in the house. He can't hear you anymore. I'm going in the house then. Now, what house did he go in? Not sure. Remember, he's in Capernaum. We think he probably stayed with Peter and Peter's family in Capernaum. That may be the house that he's going into. The house would infer that it's a house that he was in a lot. Regardless, Jesus goes in the house. Jesus has one thing on his mind. He's been out all day ministering, serving, healing, teaching, walking, going here and there, and it's got to be late in the day. And Jesus is headed home. It's like me, Sunday afternoon. We get done, I'm like, come on, we're going home. Come on. I just imagine he's wore out. People pushing in on him all day, calling for his attention, calling for his affection. Touch me, heal me. I don't know if he's ignoring them on purpose or if he's just got other reasoning, but in the midst of their yelping, he goes into the house. But they're not going to be denied. Don't give up. Ask, seek, knock. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. So they go into the house. The blind men came to him. Came to him where? In the house. They followed him into the house. Which is such a weird picture to me. How they know how to get in. They're blind. Was somebody leading them? Was it a skill they had developed as blind men to be able to follow people? I don't know. But I do know that they came to Jesus there in the house. And how does Jesus respond? i got to take my nap, guys. We're out. Can you just give me a few minutes to unwind, fellas? I mean, deck on. I haven't even washed my feet yet. No, when they come in, he asks them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Now, that's an interesting question. Looks, Jesus looks at these men who can't look at him and pretty much admits that he had heard them when he ignored them. And he asks if they believe that he can make them not blind. 
He puts them on the spot. Forcing their attention onto their faith in Him. And it's a question to dig in and ask if they really do believe that He's the Messiah. He's not just asking them, hey, do you really think I can help you see? He's asking them, do you really believe what you're saying? Do you believe that I am able? Do you really believe that I am the Messiah? Because the Messiah is able to do this. And if you believe that I'm able to do this, you're making quite a confession. Maybe their yelling was just a way to get his attention. Maybe they were trying to flatter him. Do you really believe that I am the Messiah and that as such I can make you not blind right now? Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you believe that I am who you say I am? Do you believe that I am who my deeds show me to be? And what do they say to him? Yes, Lord. Ha! Ha ha ha! Again, a proclamation of faith that is so much more than just two words. Of course, yes is the positive affirmation, but what do they call him now? Lord! Yes, Lord! Now what does that mean? Lord means God. The Greek word is kurios and it's translated as Lord. It can mean simply sir. But with them having already called him the son of David, here, Lord, has to mean more than just yes, sir. They are saying that they believe that he is God in the flesh. That he is the son of God. That he is the son of David. That he is the Messiah. Do you believe? Yes, Lord. Wow. What a moment. What a profession. What a powerful testimony to their faith. And then what? Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. Now we know, we've seen in the past, that Jesus can heal in pretty much any way he wants to. Right? Centurion's servant, he can just speak a word miles away, and there's healing. People can touch his clothes for crying out loud and get healed. But here, he touches their eyes. I don't know what it looked like. There's two of them. He's got two hands, maybe put a hand. I don't know. Why? I don't know. I don't know. But I know that it must have been quite a sensation for them. God Almighty in human flesh touching their blinded eyes. When do you think the last time was that anybody touched their eyes? Who touches your eyes? That's kind of like an intimate thing, right? I mean, if somebody's touching your eyes, I'm like, I'm, ugh, quit it, freak. What are you doing? It's my eyes. Don't touch my eyes. But he touches their eyes. He invades their space with his hands. And again, as he did, he said, according to your faith, be it done to you. He attributed the healing of their blind eyes to their faith. Now we've already seen some people had faith that Jesus healed. Some people didn't have faith that Jesus healed. Again, the centurion servant at home didn't didn't even know what was going on. Jesus healed him. So is faith a prerequisite for healing? No, it's not. The sovereignty of God is the only prerequisite for healing. So what's he saying here? 
He attributed the healing of their blind eyes to their faith. And He didn't just say, okay, since you believe, I'll do it. No, He says it's been done according to their faith. Now listen, this is important. The greatness of the faith is associated with the greatness of the miracle. See, the phrase according to is important. Um, If I've got a million dollars and you ask me for some money because you know I've got some money and I give you 20 bucks, I have given to you out of my wealth. Now, if you have a need and I've got a million dollars and I give you... $10,000, well, then I've given according to my wealth. You see the difference? I can give out of my my wealth or I can give according to my wealth. Somebody who's poorer would give less than somebody who's richer if they're giving according to their wealth. You with me? Stay with me here. Okay? So he says, according to your faith, be it done to you. So Jesus is praising their faith. He's saying that they had great faith. What was their faith in? Was their faith in His ability to heal them? Not ultimately. It's in there. The greatness of their faith is in who Jesus is. The greatness of their faith is in that He is the Son of David. The greatness of their faith is found when they call Him Lord. And they have great faith in that fact. And that makes the physical healing, listen to me, a visible picture of their spiritual healing. The greatness of their faith is in Jesus. The greatness of their faith is in the Messiah. And that faith saved them. And then the object of their faith healed them. Much, much, much more important that they knew who Jesus was than that they knew what Jesus was capable of doing. Same's true for us, by the way. I don't just come to Jesus and say, what can you do for me? I come to Jesus and recognize who He is and what He's capable of, and then I ask Him to do according to what my faith is in, who my faith is in, which is Him. So according to. So this is not, since they had faith, Jesus healed them. According to their great faith in Him as the Messiah, He healed them question is, did it work? Well, yeah. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. Yeah, it worked. When Jesus touched their eyes, their eyes were open. The word for open means to make, to function. Their eyes started working. Retinas started working. And and like uh, optic nerves started functioning that hadn't functioned before. There was a bodily change. And it was a miracle. What a reason for celebration. Hey, so I can see, let's throw a party, right? Seeing party, vision party, I can see, party. Throw the the confetti, I can see it. I can see it falling. What a reason for celebration. Let's celebrate. But wait just a second. Jesus sternly warned them. And this means, now hear this, pay attention, this is important. See that no one knows about it. Wait, what? Hey, you blind guys who aren't blind anymore, make sure nobody knows, okay? Now, how would that work? Would they have to act blind around people? Walking around, chilling, high-fiving, I can see this, I can see that, and somebody shows up, they're like, oh, 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 blind guy. 
Don't want you to know and I can see. No, that's not what he's talking about. Jesus is saying something different. Their confession was in who Jesus was. Not in what Jesus was doing. Right? Son of David, Lord. Their confession of Him as the Messiah is what He's saying to make sure nobody knows about. You can't not let people know that you can see after you can see. So He's not saying don't let anybody know that you can see now. This confession that they're making, make sure nobody knows about that. He doesn't want them babbling about how the Messiah had healed them. Jesus didn't want Messiah talk starting in Jewish places. Their expectation, the Jews' expectation of the Messiah was of a conquering king, a military king, who would set up the throne of David and Israel would be a sovereign nation again. Remember that? And if chatter gets started, it could cause a lot of problems for Jesus' ministry. He had laid out His manifesto in the Sermon on the Mount showing that His kingdom was different than the expectations of the religious Jews of his day. He didn't meet their expectations. He didn't fit their mold. And if they start thinking that he's the Messiah, that he's around, they're going to try to start a revolution. John 6, Jesus feeds a bunch of people, and they come to make him their king. Well, why wouldn't they? If he can feed people just magically, we want this guy to be our king. Well, that's a problem for what Jesus wants to do in his ministry, in his life. See, Jesus had come to heal blind people. Jesus had come to save the poor in spirit and such. And if this messianic fervor builds, imagine how hard it would be for Jesus to get around to help the helpless. They'd have Him in the halls of power. They'd have Him petitioning the the religious leaders and the military leaders and the governmental leaders. And so Jesus is like, keep this Messiah stuff down. Don't go around hawking that. There'll come a time when Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, they say, you're John the Baptist or Isaiah or somebody. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See to it that you tell no one, Jesus said. He didn't want this Messiah talk floating around, even though He was the Messiah. It's interesting to note that when Jesus had delivered the demonized men over in Gadara, over across the sea... One of them says he wants to go and follow Jesus, but Jesus told him to go and tell people all that Jesus had done for him. Why would he say that over there but tell these people over here to be quiet? Don't let people know. Makes sense when you realize that the demonized men were in a Gentile area. The Gentiles weren't looking for a Messiah. So the people in Gadara in the Gentile territory were told to go and tell while these blind men were told Shut up. Don't tell anybody. And so, of course, out of respect for the Messiah, the Son of David, the Lord, out of of respect for Him and His request, they obey, right? Nope. But they went away and spread His fame all through that district. Whoa! It's the blind guys! Not anymore, brother! The Messiah done healed us! What? What? Tell me about it. Yeah, it was awesome. We went with the son of David. Lord, he touched our eyes. And like here we are, and it was him. It was Jesus, the guy from, from Capernaum. He's, he's, in, he's in Peter's house. He's a Messiah. You don't need to go see him. That's what they're doing. All through that district. That didn't take long. He said, don't, but 
they did something different. He said keep it down, but they went away and spread his fame all through that district. They went all around there telling everybody who he was, what he had done. He said don't, but they did. So let me ask you this. Is this sin on their part? Yes. Jesus said don't, and they did. You say, well, that's kind of tough. They directly and patently did what he told them not to do. Listen to me. Sometimes our zeal for who Jesus is can be handled wrongly. I'm talking to you, Facebook. I'm talking to you, Twitter. Sometimes we just need to shut up. Jesus doesn't need Twitter defenders of the faith. Proclaim the truth. Love God. Love people. It's not up to you to save Twitter. It's not up to you to save Facebook. And when we try, sometimes our zeal is actually sin. Be careful. We can, in our desire to make Jesus known, disobey His commands. It's tricky, and we don't have a lot of time to spend here this morning. Just consider, who are you and who are you representing and are you being obedient to the call of the Messiah when you're proclaiming His truth? Or are you just trying to beat somebody up and make them look stupid? got real quiet after that fan turned off. We've got to move on. Because these two aren't the only ones who get a healing today. Verse 32. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed, oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. So the blind men are leaving. They're going away. I don't know if it's worth mentioning or not, but the King James Version says, As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil. It's possible that it was the blind men, the formerly blind men, were the ones who brought the mute man to Jesus. It's not real important, but I think it's interesting. It was the first person that they went out and grabbed and said, Hey, come talk to this guy. We can see. I don't know. It's possible. But now the ESV says, As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. doesn't really signify who brought him to him. Behold, Matthew says. So pay attention. Remember what that means? Stop. Pay attention. To what? To a demon-oppressed man who was mute. This guy's not medically or physically oppressed, but rather demon-oppressed. A demon had made this man unable to talk. So apparently demons can do that. Well, we're too smart for that. Well, that'd be something else wrong with him. Obviously, his occipital lobe or some of them. No, it was a demon. Occipital has to do with vision, by the way. I don't know why I said the mute. Just trying to sound really fancy, important. Yeah. <laughs> he couldn't see what he was saying. That's nice. <laughs> so anyway, demon, a demon or some demons had made it to where this man could not speak. He was mute. And again, he might have been deaf at well. Sometimes mute can mean deaf and not be able to talk. We don't know. One way or the other, we know that he couldn't talk. And somebody brought this guy to Jesus. Now, why do you figure they did such a thing? Well, I'd say they wanted this guy healed. If they had reason to believe that he was demonized, they probably wanted Jesus to deliver him. Again, they might have just wanted him to speak. They might not have known it was a demon. Jesus knew what was going on. Because when he came in, the man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never 
was anything like this seen in Israel. So yeah, he cast out the demon. The word literally means driven out. Jesus tells demons what to do. Like, well, he shouldn't communicate with demons. Are you kidding me? He's the boss of them. And they don't fight that. Yes, sir. Can we go in pigs? Remember that one? Yeah, sure, go in the pigs. That's fine. But when he made this demon leave, this guy who couldn't talk before, talked. I wish it told us what he said, but it doesn't. And you know, we can kind of read that and yawn because yeah, that's what Jesus does. But imagine being there. Imagine it being somebody in your family or your friend or somebody who couldn't talk. And Jesus says, come out of him, you demon, leave him alone. Demon's gone. And the guy says, praise God. And they're like, he's like, I can, I can talk. I can talk. Don't just read over that and say, yeah, that's cool. No. No, imagine being there. Imagine hearing this guy talk who couldn't talk just a moment before when he walked in the door. Listen to me. We are far too comfortable. We are far too at ease with the miraculous power of Jesus. And I think we either assume it to our detriment, making it far too normal. Yeah, yeah, Jesus can do that. Or we dismiss it out of hand and think that it's not there anymore. Listen to me. Jesus Christ is a miracle worker. Jesus Christ has the power to do what Jesus Christ wants to do. Well, the crowd there that saw this man do what he did, this man Jesus, they responded emphatically. It says the crowds marveled. The word marvel means to wonder at and to have admiration for. They were swooning over Jesus. Oh, Jesus. The crowd looked at Jesus and were filled with wonder. They admired Him and they said, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. Now what's their focus on? What He's doing. Not on who He is. Never has anything like this happened. Anything like this has been seen in Israel. We like what we're seeing. We like what you're doing. Keep doing it. Not acknowledging Him. Give us bread. Miracle mongers. This is unprecedented. This is unheard of. We've never seen anything like this before. Not in, the, not in the whole nation of Israel, in the history of Israel. Not, not, not Moses, not David, not Elijah, not Solomon. Nobody's ever done stuff like this before, which they had. Man, do you remember what happened during the time of Moses? Parting the Red Sea. Delivering a whole army. But this, this is, oh, this is great. And they were right. It was unique. So it's quite a time for them, isn't it? Miracles are happening. Maybe, maybe the kingdom's coming and their eyes are focused on what they can get out of it. The whole nation should be rejoicing though, right? Because if this is the Messiah and He's doing these things, there's, man, it's coming. The religious people should really know what's going on, right? They should have eyes to see. Well, here come the sour grapes. But 
the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. People are being healed. Blind people seeing. Mute, demonized men speaking. People are marveling and admiring, but... But the Pharisees. Oh yeah, those guys. These guys are not fans of Jesus. They're not fans of what He's doing, who He's hanging out with, or anything about Him. He come from Nazareth. And they were surely not going to marvel or admire Him for His works. So they have to do something to discredit Him. He must pick His nose or something. No, they, they go all the way here. They say, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. That's something, right? They recognize that Jesus is casting out demons. But how's He doing it? By the prince of demons. Well, who's the prince of demons? Satan. Other passages use the name Beelzebul, which means Lord of the house. They're saying that Jesus casts out demons by the power of Satan. They're saying that Jesus is operating in the power of Satan. They recognize that Jesus is doing some stuff, but they cannot rejoice in it, nor can they admire Him for it. They have to explain it away. They have to discredit Him because He had scorched them in that Sermon on the Mount. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't be like them. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, well, well, let me tell you, Satan. Have to explain it away. They've got to do something to squelch all this hope and joy and excitement that they could never produce with their self-inflating external righteousness. They had no power. They had no authority. Jesus had it all, and they had to make sure to besmirch Him in some fashion. So, cue the sour grapes. He's not the Messiah. He is the devil. Well, that would do it. They attribute Jesus' power to the devil. Now, Jesus will address this when we get into Matthew 12, so we won't dive into that here, his response to that. We just need to see their reaction in contrast with everybody else's. God is doing miraculous things, and these Pharisees are saying it's Satan doing it. Do you need any other proof that they're on the wrong side of this whole deal? Matthew is purposefully juxtaposing the king and his work to the dead deeds of the self-righteous Pharisees. And their reaction, the Pharisees' reaction, shows us, all, shows us that all is not well in this messianic revelation tour. Great deeds were being done, seeds were being sown to put an end to this madness... And it was being done by the religious elite saying, we can't stand for this, we're not going to stand for this. And they had to bring an end to it, and that end would ultimately culminate on a Roman cross. Religious man cannot stand before the true work of God. He has to explain them away and make them stop one way or another. So we see three groups of people today. Those who were touched and healed, those who marveled at the miracles, and the sour grapes crew, which brings us to application. And we have to ask ourselves, how should we respond to all of this? And we can respond in one of three ways. And we're going to categorize them with bees this morning. Bees. 
Where's Jason and Angela? Where's the, where are the bee people? For goodness sake. Bees. We can respond. We can be believers, beholders, or we can be bitter in our response to who Jesus is and what He's doing. Let's look at these. First, the believers. The blind men and the mute man were directly touched and affected by Jesus and His healing power. He changed them. Now, we don't have any indication that the demonized mute man made any confession of faith. So we're, we're going to leave him on the shelf because we don't know. But we do see clearly that the blind men, before even being healed, called Jesus the Son of David and they called Him Lord. Before they were healed physically, they declared His deity and proclaimed Him as Messiah. Their belief in who Jesus was saved them. They were genuine believers. And it didn't take a miracle to convince them of that, by the way. And then Jesus healed them. So what's the application for us? The question has to be answered. Listen to me. Everybody in this building this morning is accountable to answer this question for themselves. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? Is Jesus Christ the Lord? Lip service is not adequate here. Saying you believe it has to be backed up by showing that you believe it. Listen to me. Calling Him Lord is not the same thing as living with Him as your Lord. Your Master. Do the decrees of God, does the law of God and the glory of God direct your entire life? If not, you can call Him Lord all you want, but He's not. You're saying, I can't sin? I'm not saying that. These men went right out and sinned immediately after their proclamation of faith. The call to application here is to believe in Jesus as Master, as Messiah, as the Lord. Is Jesus Christ your Lord? Jesus asks this in Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? I think one of the greatest fallacies, one of the greatest dangers of modern day evangelicalism, of Christianity in America especially, is an easy believism. Just believe. Just, just believe. Just, just confess Him as Lord. Romans 10, 9, 10, right? If you believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, you're saved. Good, I've done that. Good, I'm saved. Well, it says that, right? But Jesus says here, Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you to do? Well, what's He tell us to do? Well, I don't know. I mean, mean, you know, I don't know. Why don't you know? That's what you've got a Bible for. We have to read, we have to study, we have to meditate on, we have to memorize, and we have to live out the decrees of the Holy Scriptures because they are the very words of God. 
And it will take a lifetime to pursue those decrees and know and love and serve the Lord of those decrees. And this process will alter your life. True believers will live differently tomorrow than they did today. You will forsake sin and you will pursue holiness. Or you're not a believer. You will deny yourself and love God and love others. Or you're not a believer. Well, you're just trying to scare me. Sure, fine. Yes. Has this believing altered your life? If not, you have not believed. Are you changed? Are you different? If you're not, you're not a believer. Well, that's a bummer. doesn't have to be. Peter gives us a pretty good summary in 2 Peter 1, 3-11 of what this changing life should look like. Stay with me. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us, believers, all things that pertain to life and godliness. So we have everything we need. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, that's what's in the Bible, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, God's life in us, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, believer, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this there there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that's a mouthful. You want something to meditate on? You want something to memorize? You want something to evaluate your life by? There it is. And it's incredibly convicting for me. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, not if you've seen them here and there. I did pretty good the other day. No, no. Are you a partaker of the divine nature? Have you escaped the corruption of the world's sinful desires? Do you see the qualities of faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love in your life? And are they increasing? Are you diligently confirming your calling and election and practicing these qualities? That's how you know if you're a true believer. If you don't see these things, you need to wake up and stop just living on accident and doing this on purpose. By the power of God in you. Because you've become partakers of the divine nature. And it looks different than the world. And if it doesn't look different from the world, you're not a believer. 
And we need to quit patting people on the back and saying, you're okay, it's okay. You signed a card, you got baptized, you made a profession when you were seven. We've got to stop doing that. And we've got to look at each other and say, I don't see fruit in your life, brother. Well, who are you to judge me? I'm your brother who loves you and who cares about you. That's who I am. Well, ain't nobody going to judge me. Well, yeah, they are. Somebody's going to judge you one day. And he's not going to grade on a curve. He's not going to judge based on, well, you did all right compared to other people. You're not Hitler. Come on in. It's your life. It's your pattern. It's your progress that shows whether you are a believer or not. Pointing back to a decision you made or a ritual you kept back in your early childhood is not proof that you are saved. Just calling Jesus Lord, Lord is not proof. Your life shows where your faith is. Your life shows where your allegiance lies. And those blind men put action to their words, desperately yelling for, pursuing, following, insisting upon, and pouring their praise out to Jesus showed their faith. What is showing yours? If you are a believer. So that's one possible reaction. You can be a believer. You can be a beholder to what we've talked about today. They like what they see. They enjoy it. But you don't see them proclaiming Jesus as Lord. They don't follow Him and let Him dictate what should be done. And I would say that most of humanity falls into this category. They like Jesus. They admire what they think He has done or can do, but it makes no difference in their lives. And as long as He does neat things and shows them things they like, they smile and wave and say, Jesus is good. And they say, wow, I've never seen anything like this before. But that's worlds away from calling Jesus the Son of David, calling Him Lord. Because you can enjoy what you see and not let it affect your life. I can cheer on a religious movement and not let it move me at all personally. It's a very quick transition from never has anything like this been seen in Israel to crucify Him. How? Because these people are just crowd followers. That's all they are. Whatever everybody else is doing is what they're doing. While Jesus is popular and healing people and is the focus of the public eye, they'll love Him. But when He calls for fidelity and submission to His Lordship, when He threatens their stability or their sense of ease, then it's time to kill Him. Beholders in our day give lip service to the faith they grew up with, but Jesus has no direct impact on their current life. I want to ask you, is this you today? You're familiar with all things Jesus. You come to church every week. You give your money. You might even listen to the message again this coming week. But is Jesus Christ your Lord? Lip service, but no life change. Are you there? Is that you? Matthew 13, 20 through 22 gives us a picture of what these folks look like. Jesus is explaining the parable of the soils. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. No fruit, no Lord.
What's the fruit in your life? If you're a beholder, you've got no fruit. You've got a little bit of an excitation. Or you like the fact that we eat every Sunday. And that's not going to get you to heaven. These people either fall away or they prove to be unfruitful. So the application, if you're in this group, listen to me, repent. Call on Jesus and follow and obey Him as Lord. In other words, call out on Him to save you because to this point you have not been and you are not saved. You can like Jesus and not be saved by Him. You can agree with the Bible and not let it determine how you live. That's what beholders do. Believers, beholders, and now finally the bitter. Maybe, maybe, there's nobody in this room today who falls into this category. Maybe. But maybe there are. These are the people who see Jesus and hear all that He has done and they just explain it away. Maybe they're religious like the Pharisees, but they're putting their faith in their own system. Well, that's not what I see in the Bible. That's not how I interpret it. Or maybe they're leaning on worldly wisdom where these hokey old religious fables just don't cut it. Or maybe, and I think scariest of all, is that you've had religious experiences, but they've only pushed you away from God. Maybe you've been hurt by Christians or hurt by the church and it's soured you to everything related to God. I'm afraid we all know people who say this. Be careful that you're not in this group. And it doesn't have to be as overt or as outwardly confrontational as the Pharisees were to be bitter and to be in this group. Maybe you're just disillusioned. Maybe you've heard all the religious stuff. Maybe even dabbled in it for yourself for a while. But you're just not there anymore. You've moved on. You've grown up. You've learned better. Or maybe you just grew cold, fell away, or just plain forgot. All these conditions lead to bitterness against the kingship and lordship of Jesus in your life. And as such, you're not a believer. Your heart is hard and your life shows it. Hebrews 13, 12 and 13 say this. So Jesus, that's not the right verse. I did that last week. It's 3, 12, and 13. I have it here. Your life shows that your heart is hard. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Don't be the sour grapes person who refuses to follow Jesus and then justifies it by telling all that's wrong with Jesus and His followers. Church is full of hypocrites. I know what some of those people are doing. The Bible's full of contradictions. I tried it and it doesn't work. Listen to me. Your excuses will not hold up when you stand before the judge of all things. Your sour grapes will carry you to an eternal hell where God will righteously get glory in your rightful condemnation. Ultimately, a refusal to call Jesus as Lord, a refusal to call Jesus Lord and live in obedience to His commands is the same as the Pharisees saying Jesus was operating in the power of Satan. The outcomes of both are one and the same. 
So let me ask you, are you a believer? Are you a beholder? Or are you bitter this morning? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If that makes you bitter, God have mercy on your soul. If you just look at those as pretty words, God have mercy on your soul. But if you know that and are working by the power of the Holy Spirit to conform to His image and to be changed from glory to glory, from strength to strength, to be more like Him every day, then you're a believer. And He has commanded men everywhere to be saved and to believe and to repent. What will you do with that truth today? Let's pray. God, before you came, we were all dead in our sins and our trespasses. But you spoke life. Your Holy Spirit breathed life, regenerated us, and then we called out to you. Son of David, Lord, have mercy on me. God, I pray that right now in this moment, your Spirit would do that very work in the hearts and souls of people who need it done. And for those of us who do know you, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the work to conform us to your image, to convict us of our sins, and help us to not adhere to our own commandments and desires, God, but to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus all the way to glory. Jesus, you made blind men see. You made mute men talk. You made dead men alive. Do that work here in us today. We ask it and expect it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and receive benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay and eat with us. It's cooler back there. You know? <laughs>